Waterford. It's just a thrill to be with you again and to have you guys here with us. Um, we have been going through this series, Are We There Yet? And this is our last week for it. We've kind of been asking that a little bit sarcastically because we know we're not there yet. We never arrive. We never get there. So really, the series is never over. So we say this is the last week, but we'll be talking about it and thinking about it for the rest of our lives. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about siblings. Um, but, and I think just as a way to introduce me to you, and, and so I get to know you a little bit more, I want everyone to raise their hand. And I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to make you do anything funny. This is just kind of a little survey, all right? So just raise your hand, um, everyone, everywhere, where you're seated. And I want you to put your hand down if you are an only child. Okay, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. Okay, um, if you only have one other sibling, put your hand down. So a family of two. And then uh, what if you got two siblings? Put your hand down. All right, three siblings, put your hand down. Four siblings, put your hand down. Five siblings, put your hand down. Six, seven, eight, nine, Ten. Okay, that was ten. There. Were you both at ten? You have ten siblings, each of you. You're not related, right? You're not this. It's not the same. <laughs> ten siblings. Well, that is. I'm. I'm surprised you have survived so far in life. That is incredible. Um, big families are a blessing. I come from a family of uh, five of us, so three siblings. Um, I'm the oldest, so I'm actually kind of like an only child, really, if you think about it. Because in life, the oldest child has so many advantages over the other children. And I didn't realize that growing up that I was, I had all those advantages until um, they started telling me that I had so many advantages. (laughs) My sister, she's the youngest, so it was, again, kind of like she was an only child. Because being the only girl and the youngest puts you in special category where you get a lot of advantages. Now, my brother... Um, he's in the middle of the two of us, and he had, um, we, we often think about this, he had a, um, a very deadly childhood disease um, growing up, and that was called middle child syndrome. And uh, every couple of months we have a memorial service for him. Uh, he leads it. And he tells us uh, what we should say nice about him, and um, then we just move on with our lives. Um, until that time that he brings it up again. And he's, and he's here today, so he knows I'm, what I'm saying about him, which is fine. So he's probably writing some of it down to use in the next memorial service. He's like, this is good stuff. I like this a lot. And then my microphone cuts out. Um, no, uh, my brother, he's a great guy. He's one of the most passionate, one of the most uh, 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 intellectual and, and um, just really great people that I've had the privilege of uh, being friends with and uh, being a brother with. Um, at least that's what it says in my notes here. So um, this morning we're going to turn our attention to a, a pair of siblings in the Bible. They weren't just siblings. They weren't just brothers. They were twins. And twins are a very special kind of uh, sibling. They have a very unique and uh, interesting relationship. And in our relationship here, we have um, we have some problems. So our siblings are fighting. They do not like each other because some things have happened. 
as in most uh, families, there is always the uh, encounter with sibling rivalry. And so we want to turn our attention just for our uh, last few minutes together here today about what we can learn from this episode of sibling rivalry. Now, um, this takes place in Genesis, and you can flip there if you want to. I'm going to talk about something first before that, but if you want to, it's in Genesis 33 is where we're going to be reading from. Now, before this all happened, our, our two brothers are named Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau's name means hairy, which on the scale of where you want to be named in life, Esau did not make the cut in my life. So I was not known as Esau because Harry is just not a good way to be known through life. Jacob is not much better. Jacob means the deceiver or one who deceives. Uh, so again, these not great names, but they accurately describe uh, who they are. Um, it also, Jacob might mean heel grabber because when they came out of the womb together, Jacob was actually grabbing the heel of Esau. And this was actually fulfilling of a prophecy that God had given their mother, Rebecca, to say, the younger in the womb will usurp the older one. He'll take the rightful place. Now, the older one was Esau. He came out first. And so Jacob, by like 20 seconds, not that he holds it against him, but Jacob was the younger son. And so Jacob ends up stealing the blessing from their father, Isaac. Now, you may be familiar with the story. You may not be, but I'm kind of trying to refresh you as quickly as I can. So the last thing that Esau and Jacob do together is get that blessing. Now, Jacob takes the blessing from Esau. He goes in and he actually puts goat skins on his arms. I don't know how hairy Esau was, but to put some goat skins on your arm, that man was seriously in need of like a razor or something. That is, that's intense to be able to do that. But he went in, got the blessing from Isaac, and he ran away because he knew what he had gotten away with was really too much. So he goes and he leaves, and Esau goes in and tries to get the blessing from his father, and... Um, He's like, I just blessed you. You were just in here. I blessed you. I can't give you another blessing. I think your brother just stole your blessing. And so this is what, this is what Esau says of his brother. Esau hated Jacob with a fury because his brother now carried the blessings his father meant for him. The days of mourning for my father are approaching. When he has died, I will kill my brother Jacob. That's what you want to hear in a family, right? That's nice. It's a nice thing to have. Usually it's like over, like you finished the cereal or you drank all the milk, I'm going to kill you. This was, you stole my birthright, you stole my blessing. The next time I see Jacob, I'm going to kill him. And that's the last time the brothers ever see each other. And some things happen and we skip forward a little bit in the story. And Genesis 33 picks up 20 years later. Jacob knows what he's done to his brother. Jacob knows what's coming. Jacob knows, because he talked to his mother, Rebecca, about this. She says, your brother is seeking to kill you. You need to leave. And so they get out and they go. And meanwhile, he's amassed all this wealth and all these people and this family and these wives and all these crazy things happen. It's a great story. It's one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible about Jacob and, and his family and his life. Um, if you have time, you should read it. But I'm going to read when they meet back together. And this is in Genesis chapter 33. Now, they remember, they had been separated for about 20 years. So this has been 20 years since they'd seen each other. Esau has this just long hair that stretches to the ground. 
And it says, Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming, and 400 men were with him. Jacob quickly divided the children among Leah and Rachel and their two servants. He put the female servants with their children in front. Nice move, man. Nice. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them and he bowed to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet him. He embraced Jacob with a kiss and kissed his neck and both cried. Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Esau said, who are these people with you? Jacob responded, these are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants came closer along with their children and they bowed down. Leah did likewise. She and her children approached and bowed down. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and they bowed down as well. Esau says, what was your intent in sending all of your men and herds ahead of you? Jacob said, I hope to find favor with you, my master. Esau says, I've had enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob insists, no, please, if I have found favor with you after all these years, please accept the gifts I offer. Seeing your face again is like seeing the face of God. So graciously and warmly have you welcomed me. Please accept the blessing I bring. God has graciously provided for me and my family. I have everything I could want. Jacob kept insisting that Esau accept the gift, and he finally did. This morning, we're going to talk about a big word, and it's called reconciliation. And let's break down that word just a little bit, because sometimes that's not a word that we hear right away, and we think, oh yeah, reconciliation, I know exactly what that is. Reconciliation comes from a word that means to bring back together. So to reconcile ourselves with someone else, to reconcile ourselves in a relationship, means that we are restoring what once was there. We're restoring exactly what we had lost. Now, in our life, and I'm sure this has been for you as well as it's been for me, there's been some times where I've burned some bridges, where I have just been completely overwhelmed in a relationship and just really knocked it down and said, we don't want this person in our lives anymore. We're going to get rid of this. And so we burn those bridges and we sort of estrange ourselves from them. And the word estrange, we're going to have to learn that one as well. That's sort of like to treat as a stranger. To be unfamiliar with is actually what it literally means. So in our reconciliation, when we're reconciling with other people, we're bringing things back together as they once were. We're restoring once, what once was. The, the, the Hebrew word for reconciliation is actually one you might know. It's shalom. The idea of peace in the Hebrew Testament is the idea of bringing all things under a reconciliation, bringing all things back together, restoring what originally was lost. So in Genesis 3, we kind of messed up. God said, here, I'll give you everything. And we said, no, I don't want anything. I just want the things that I can't have. And we burn that bridge and that relationship to God. And so the idea of shalom, what the, the Jewish idea, the Israelite idea when they had that, was to bring all of these things back together under the same umbrella to restore those relationships that have once lost. So anytime you hear me say reconciliation today or we're reading about it in the, in the Bible or um, you're thinking about it as you go, you can think about those things instead. Think about bringing together or think about peace or think about um, maybe even a realignment of the way things used to be. 
The Greek word for reconciliation actually means exchange or even to change things. So when we talk about a a relationship that has been reconciled, we're talking about that there's been a physical and mental and emotional change that has happened in that relationship between people. Something has changed in it, and now it is different than before. Now, hopefully in our reconciliation, we have been able to change things for the better, not for the worse. Now, this story of siblings and this sibling rivalry ends in happiness because of this reconciliation. I'm going to walk through some of these verses and we're going to talk about what reconciliation means to us and what we can learn from this meeting of these, um, these twins here, these, these uh, brothers. So reconciliation, the first thing that it do is it reconsiders our priorities. Because when we are in a relationship that we have burned a bridge, when we are in a relationship where we start to look at things and we decide that they're not right, when we look at things in a relationship and we say, I don't want to be a part of this anymore, we're all of a sudden changing our priorities from the priorities of people around us. We're now changing them to our priorities. We're setting ourselves up to be a very selfish and self-centered person. Because in our priorities, in our relationship, we've now said, my life and my things and my wants and my needs are more important than yours. So where do relationships fail? They don't fail in communication, although they can. They don't fail in, uh, in uh, spending time with each other, although they can. They fail when we step up and say, my needs are more important than your needs. And here in the life of Jacob and Esau, Jacob said, I really desire blessing. I really desire wealth. I really desire to be more popular than my brother. And so he took it. And that showed his priorities. That showed his heart. That showed who he was to steal that from his brother. And so when we try and reconcile in a relationship, when we go back to people, when we try and come back together, reconciliation reconsiders our priorities in that relationship. And as we delay reconciliation, our earthly desires are going to supersede any kingdom priorities that we might have. So the work of the church and the work of evangelism and the work of of growing our faith and spreading our faith with other people... That stuff's going to be put on hold because now we're more concerned about how we're living. We're more concerned about our priority and our needs rather than the needs of the kingdom and the needs of Christ and the needs of the people around us. And we can sort of shelter ourselves off from that. We can sort of build a wall and be in denial about all those things that are around us because we just don't want to deal with those things especially in a relationship that we have burned, especially in a relationship where we don't want to have anything to do with anymore. And now this just isn't, if you notice, this isn't just about brothers and sisters and siblings. This is about any relationship that you have in your life with a mother or a father or with a coworker, or with another uh, person in this church or another family member. See, reconciliation is something that we desire in our lives because it impacts every relationship that we have. As we wander around, it's clear that we're giving in to selfish demands rather than the demands that God has made known. And in verse 1 and 2, we can see exactly what Jacob is doing. He is rearranging the parts 
of his life to meet Esau. And I know it's a bad move. He puts the women and children in front. I get it. But that's just what he did. That's just the kind of guy he was. But what does he do? He puts Rachel and Joseph in the back. His beloved wife and his most beloved son. Because he wanted to protect that. But the very fact that he showed up shows us now that he's ready to reconsider the terms of this relationship. That in his heart he has been wrong. And it's time to make those things correct again. Jacob is saying he recognizes the need to reconcile. That wall that we were talking about, that thing that holds us apart, that alienates us, that isolates us, that's the sin in our lives. Genesis 3, that sin kept us from our relationship with God and walls us off in isolation and alienation because we believe that we are better than that. It's not our fault that this relation, you don't, uh, no, you don't understand what they did to me. You don't understand where I am in my life. They should come to me because they're the ones that hurt me. See, sin does that. That's sin getting in our lives and, and telling us those little lies that deceive us. That say, hey, you're not as good as you think you are, actually. That, hey, actually, you might be to blame in this. But because we are so blinded in our lives, we sometimes cannot see that. When we submit and humble ourselves, we are declaring the need to form a bridge between each other. So if in this relationship we're thinking about the metaphor of a bridge between two people, that bridge is open and and moving and things can go through there, relationships can be known. But if we have lost the relationship or we've done something to burn that bridge, we need to reconcile, we need to bring back together, and that includes building a bridge between each other. And this building of bridges, that's how we need to declare other people in front of us, to be in our relationships with them. We say, I see you at the other end, we're opening this up, and everything can flow through. It's like the exact opposite of like the North Korea border, where there's a bridge between those two lands. That's a closed border. Nothing can get through there because that's a relationship that's been harmed very much. And so if the relationship is ever to be restored, the bridge has to be opened. It has to be rebuilt. The second thing that reconciliation shows us is that it exposes the truth. It exposes the truth of who we are. It exposes the truth of the sin in our hearts. It exposes our desires and the truth of the relationship as it is known. Jacob came to Esau and he bowed seven times. Now in Jacob's time, they were the equivalent of um, how many times a servant bows to his master. So he's bowing to Esau as a servant would bow to a master. And so here's the truth of what Jacob feels in the relationship now. As he is reconciling his relationship with Esau, he is saying, I am submitting myself to you. I am making you my master. I'm, I'm going to now do what you desire of me rather than doing what I desire of me. When we submit to each other, when we take apart those things that have held us back, all of a sudden we can come to each other in truth and show what this is. And Esau sees Jacob's humility. He sees the truth of where Jacob's heart is. 
Jacob knows that he's wronged his brother. Jacob knows that he's uh, done these bad things and, and hidden himself from Esau from it. But by bowing to him, by saying physically, I submit myself to you, Esau can now see the truth in Jacob's heart. He can now see what Jacob is about. And when we speak the truth to each other, that's what we're doing. We're trying to heal things. We don't always necessarily say the right thing in the right manner, but when we speak in truth to each other, that's what we're trying to do, is to make sure that the relationship is open and healthy and moving on. His last idea, Esau's last idea was to kill his brother. But because Jacob was now willing to humble himself and build a bridge, Esau took that and knew the truth about Jacob. He knew who he was, and he knew what he wanted. The truth in his heart was free. We can't work in the general when we're reconciling with someone. When we're seeking peace in a relationship, when we're looking to bring things back together, it just can't be a, you know, this happened, um, I'm sorry about that. We need to be very specific. We need to be very truthful about what we did to that person. We need to be very truthful about why we did that. And we need to really come to them in humility and understanding that this is the truth and truth hurts sometimes. But when we seek to reconcile, we need to open our hearts and we need to uh, stand in front of the other one uh, to build the bridge. Otherwise, we really aren't even looking to reconcile. If we're not truthful with the other person about what happened and and where we went and how we were, then we're not looking to reconcile. We're just looking to maybe gain a new friend or something. The idea of bringing things back together where they used to be, creating the peace that God has given us, that's what we're after. And that exposes the truth of our hearts and the truth of where we have been. The third thing that reconciliation does is it creates vulnerability. We're standing there in the truth. We're standing there in front of this person that we've wronged, this bridge that we want to build. And that makes us vulnerable. And we don't like to be vulnerable people. We don't like to open ourselves up and expose who we are. Because when we're vulnerable, people can take advantage of that. When we're vulnerable, someone can use that against us in ways that we didn't expect them to do. And so reconciliation with another person, if we're going to speak the truth, then we're going to need to be completely exposed in front of them. And this is what Jacob is doing as he stands there in front of Esau. 400 men staring him back in the face. And Jacob is just there. He's got sheep and he's got kids and that's what he's got. And he's completely vulnerable to any attack that Esau and his 400-man army might bring to him. The truth hurts, but vulnerability hurts even more. Because here's the thing about vulnerability. We can open ourselves up and we can stand there in front of this person, but we are not in control of what happens next. And I think the root cause of the reason that we don't want to be vulnerable with somebody is because we have let go of control. All of a sudden we said, 
all right, here I am. I'm exposed. I'm open to you. I'm standing in front of you. My heart is here. And I can't do anything about what happens next. We build the bridge. We open the borders. Things are flowing through nice. And we're standing on the other side just hoping that a tank doesn't drive down the road. We hope instead that it's balloons and pinatas, but sometimes it's not going to be. When we seek to rebuild and restore, we are left vulnerable to whatever walks over the bridge next. We don't get to choose. We don't have control. And here's the thing. We're either going to be continually rejected. We're going to be continually mocked. We're going to be continually abused. Or that person's going to see the humility of your heart and say, yes, let's repair this relationship. Let's build this bridge. In verse 6, this is what it says. Um, Then the female servants came closer along with their children and they bowed down. Leah did likewise. She and her children approached and bowed down. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and they bowed down as well. What's he sought to do? We know the last thing that he said was to kill. And here are all of Jacob's most precious things in life standing there in front of him. We don't get to choose what happens next. And that's the hardest part about building a bridge. As those borders open, something is going to come across there. And I think a lot of our hesitation to reconcile or to restore relationships, or to seek after peace. It's because we lose control in a relationship like that. We lose control in our vulnerabilities. We lose control, we lose the ability to decide what happens next. We've come this far in making the initial decision, but we don't know what comes next. Reconciliation affects generations. This is a part that I always had missed in this story. But here's something really fascinating about this story. When the brothers are standing there and reconciliation is happening and they're crying and they're kissing and they're hugging, who's a witness to this? The children. The wives. But more importantly, Joseph is standing there. And just a few years later, Joseph's brothers, who are also standing there, are going to sell him into slavery. Joseph's going to be with the Egyptians. And when Joseph finally gets the moment to confront his brothers, in Genesis 45, he says, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that we are reunited. Joseph is a witness to this moment in his father's life. His estranged uncle is standing there, his father, and they make amends. They restore the relationship. And Joseph remembers. Because when his brothers then finally stand in front of him after selling him, wanting to kill him out of jealousy and rage, they stand in front of him and he doesn't, react that way because he saw his father do the right thing we get to be witnesses to the world as a church as people the world will watch and witness 
what we do and how we react and how we treat people. And if we want to continue being bitter and we want to continue um, saying hurtful things and we want to continue in jealousy and we want to continue in the ways that we haven't been brought up, the world's going to watch. And they're going to say this about us. How are they different? Why should I be a part of something like that? They're all hypocrites. They all just do the same things we do. I'm sure you've heard that before. And so the world gets to witness the way that we react. The world gets to witness how we respond to things. And let's take it down to a microscopic level. Your family gets to witness how you respond to things. Your family gets to realize, is he going to treat her with respect? Or is he going to yell at her again? Is he going to seek to restore those relationships? Or is it just going to be a bitter fight for the rest of his life? See, we just don't affect our lives in relationships. We affect the lives of everyone we come in contact with. How we decide we want to be, how we want to decide we want to live, that's up to us. How we're accepted, that's not up to us. We just get to live our best life and push those things forward. Let me, let me prove it to you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians this, talking about reconciliation and talking about where we are with our relationship with Christ. He says this, all of this is a gift from our creator God who has pursued us. <laughs> See, we want to think that it was us that started the reconciliation. We want to think that it was all because of what we did. But Paul wants us to know that it wasn't you. It was God who pursued you and brought us into restored and healthy relationship with him through Christ. And he has given us the same mission. What does he mean, us? He means the church. He has given the church the same mission, the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of bringing things back together, the ministry of restoration, the ministry of peace, to bring others back to him. It is central to our good news that God was in Christ making things right between himself and the world. This means he does not hold their sins against them, but it also means he charges us To proclaim the message that heals and restores broken relationships with God and with each other. So we are now representatives of Christ, the liberating king. God has given us a charge to carry through our lives, urging all people on behalf of Christ to become reconciled to the creator God. Amen? It's not by our work. It's not by what we did. But we were once wanderers. We were once people that were scattered and didn't know and didn't understand and lost in our sins and suffering people. God sought us out. He went and he found us. And he made us known to his father. So that relationship could be restored. And our job as children of God now is to continue with that restoration process. We are ambassadors of Christ 
through the ministry of reconciliation. So reconciliation isn't just about these things that we do with our family. Reconciliation is about the entire world. It's a kingdom job. It's kingdom work to seek peace wherever we can. Live with each other as peaceably as you can. Because people are watching. They're watching how we treat each other. They're watching how this church treats other churches. And if we can't get along with ourselves, we're missing our complete and central mission, which is to restore all relationships. Finally, reconciliation brings these multiple blessings. Jacob and Esau were restored, and Jacob, the one seeking to reconcile, looked for more ways to bless Esau. Just the act of reconciliation was blessing enough, but he wanted to give him more than he needed to do. He needed to restore him to greater and greater things. Esau was kind of embarrassed about it because he didn't want to cheapen that blessing, that reconciliation. But Jacob insisted. And now every time they can think about that relationship, every time that they can think about that bridge that has been built, they can then be blessed again as they revisit that relationship because now the bridge is open between them. Because now that relationship is flowing again and they have seen each other and they can encourage each other and they can grow together and they have another partner to do this whole thing with. They model this reconciliation And now they are blessed in that relationship. We open ourselves to receive blessings in new places when our relationships are reconciled. We will start to out-bless the other people around us. Wouldn't that be a concept? To try and out-bless the people of this church. To try and out-give the people of this church. To try and out-serve the people of this church. Have we had churches across the nation and across the globe that looked like that, that looked like people giving more than was required of them? We would be unstoppable. But see, sin enters in and says, no, you're fine. You don't need to do more. You've already done enough. It's on them now. It's someone else's responsibility. Reconciliation isn't like that. When we seek to restore everything as it once was, when we seek a relationship and the peace in all things, we are blessed because we can increase those blessings. You see, reconciliation is not just this term in the Bible, but it's this term from accounting. And I'm not a very good bookkeeper. Um, I just like to spend money. Um, That's my bookkeeping right there. You don't have to watch your money if you don't have it. So it works really well for me. Um, not my wife, but for me, it's great. But reconciliation is the idea that we have two ledgers, two books. The bank has one and you have another one. And you're writing down everything that you've spent and the bank's writing down everything that comes out in your account. And if the accounts are reconciled, they should look exactly the same. And so in our lives, Christ has come into it because God has sent him to reconcile our accounts. He said, I know that on this side of the ledger, you spent all these things and all these things, but guess what? We've wiped it away. We've wiped the debt clean. We want to reconcile the accounts. There's nothing to reconcile because God has sent his son 
to do that. The cross of Christ has become that bridge between us and God. You want to build a bridge, send a carpenter. I think that's the best way to do things. Because now we have the opportunity to come to Jesus and to come to Christ and say, I want to repair my relationship with God. We've just been talking about man-to-man relationships. We've been talking about these earthly things that are going on. But what the cross does is it creates this vertical relationship as well. And Christ on the cross, his blood that was shed for us, that is the miracle of reconciliation. That's our whole central purpose. That's what we're here for. That's what we're doing. Because of the cross, we can come to God. Because of the cross, we now have the opportunity to stand in front of God in truth and in vulnerability and say, I love you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you, God, for saving me. We get to continue the idea of reconciliation because we have been saved through the restoration of that. The peace that overflows from the cross. The peace that comes from understanding that we are now in a right relationship with God. That's joy. That's the gospel. We get to live that out every day as we are reconciling and working towards peace.